Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. Today, we got to talk to a good friend of mine from high school, Anne Chen. Uh, Anne is of Chinese descent, but is originally actually from Taiwan. So she says she's from Chinese, she's of Chinese descent, but really she's Taiwanese. And it, it was a distinction, and we hear about this a lot in the episode, it was a distinction that she came to even more as, and as an adult is being very mindful about saying that she's Taiwanese. Um, and I think like the, the overarching sense and kind of theme of this episode was the mindfulness that we as othered individuals, as Asians in this case, have to come to the table with too. You know, the, the thing that really sat with me is how deeply connected so much of the anti-immigrant, anti-people of color sentiment is. So you just go back far enough or you go deep enough and it's actually not that deep. How much, one, they are so connected, and therefore, how much all of the civil rights movement, the anti, you know, Asian, the pushback against anti-Asian hate, the pushback against misogyny, that, you know, the, the protests about the, you know, ongoing murder of Black men at the hands of police, and what's behind that, not just the murder of them, but what's really behind all of that, that we owe to black activists who have, who have put their lives on the line over and over and over again. And that we so quickly just paper over the sacrifices they have made and forget. And there is a moment, I'm not gonna give it away because I want people to listen and really feel it because I felt it. There's a moment that you, your eyes were open mm -hmm. in a different way because of something that Anne said about the, the sacrifices and the activism of like how much we owe black people, honestly. It's a slight shift in the paradigm, but it results in a really different energy that comes out of you, me, came out of me in that little shift to be like, oh, oh, wow. Okay. Well, maybe I can stop thinking about it this way and start thinking about it this way because and she does a ton of work with uh, DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, she speaks on panels. She does a lot of work with DEI. And, um, you know, we have extended the invite. And I really think that she's going to take it up to be kind of our resident DEI speaker on the podcast. We're going to have her back. Um, she has a lot of knowledge that we didn't even scratch the surface of today. So uh, I'm really, really excited about that too, because um, she just has a lot to offer. So thank you for introducing me and for in, like having the idea of having her on and everybody enjoy Anne 
she is speaking. Yeah, and you know, you and I are extroverts. So this idea of like, why go out? out. I cannot stay in anymore. Um, yeah. So, so what I will say as an introvert, I do think that as we reintegrate into society, it's going to show the introverts from the people with social anxiety. We're like people with social anxiety. We're just able to say like, oh, I'm an introvert, blah, blah, blah. Right. As an introvert, I absolutely want to go out. I absolutely want to go to dinners and brunches and go to people's houses. I just want to do that in small groups, I, but I don't want to stay in my house. I also feel like, uh, I also feel like some people develop social anxiety during the pandemic or it just was amplified. So just like, like misanthropes, like they just don't like people. Yeah. You can't hide behind, uh, I'm an introvert or, you know, I don't really like, uh, one of the things I really hate when people say like, we don't really like small talk. I was like, first of all, most people don't like small talk, but you can also not start with, so tell me about the time your dad died. Like you don't go from hello to tell me about the time your dad died. You have to do some of that to build a relationship. You don't. Yeah. And, and you and I have talked about it because we're both extroverted, but well, the pandemic was hard because I am an extrovert. And so I wasn't getting a lot of my energy, but, um, but it also made me appreciate some of the things that introverts do. And now that we're, you know, reintegrating into society, I feel like I need to incorporate some of that and like reevaluate some of my extroverted ways that I took for granted. Yes. I'm now like, I, I want to go out. I want to be with people. I, but now I'm not going to say yes to just anything for the sake of being with people. I only, right. I only want to engage with the people I really want to be with and yeah. only want to take on the roles, like the projects or whatever that I really want to do. Cause I have a bunch of other things I could do with my time. Yeah. It's a more intentional way of being an extra. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Oh, I like that. That I think a lot of extroverts didn't necessarily, I mean, some did. I will say I didn't, I could have been more intentional and I didn't. And the pandemic has showed me that I want to be more intentional as an extrovert. And I think the pandemic has really showed introverts, there is such value in gathering and, you know, like I cannot tell you, how many times I have said yes to something and then like you know 24 hours 10 hours two hours before that thing happens I'm like I just really don't want to go you know I just can't I just stay home and yeah I think that the pandemic has shown introverts that like it's about right again regulating the size and right. being more intentional about being introverted too yeah. not just being like I'm gonna I'm gonna sit at home because I'm an introvert but like picking maybe picking and choosing the things you want to do but there is real power and there's real value in you know going out leaving the house go see a friend put on your clothes you know like that kind of thing so Kosha, Kosha were you and I talking about how like just we should all be prepared for like the roaring 20s again well all the psychologists are saying that like they're actually like this is exactly what happened. This was the feel. Oh, in 1919, right after like, the flu pandemic. The flu pandemic. People were like, "I'm wearing a tiara to go to the grocery store," and that's where you know the flapper and the, the flapper dresses and the the beaded everything and the fringe because they were stuck at home for two years. So it's like 
Yeah, I think. I mean, we're primed for a new roaring 20s. That makes sense. But I definitely feel like, mm, you know, I've, like I said, like more intentional. Because the other thing that I learned to appreciate is my downtime. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm doing stuff, I'm like, wait, I don't have as much downtime. I really need that downtime. I got used to it. I agree with you. So if you could introduce yourself. Can I say, Mr. Vice President, I am speaking. You can. You absolutely <laughs> Heck can. Yeah. Okay, I will say that. Yes, please well, do. Okay. You should probably say for, Mr. Former Vice President. Because that's what, that's what she said, right? Yeah. Absolutely. She said, she said, Mr. Vice President, she also said, excuse me, I am speaking. Oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do a Kamala because she's awesome. Hi, I am Ann Chen. And excuse me, Mr. Former Vice President, I am speaking. Well, Ann, welcome to our podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I am excited too, because as an extrovert, this is like my dream come true. Yeah, I know. The only thing better is if we were sitting to actual physically together. Which I try to do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> As we the just, extrovert. We're working on it. Season one has almost all been virtual because of the pandemic. Yeah, I, I didn't take it personally. Don't worry. So when you come back, obviously, because you'll be back, um, we'll hopefully be able to do a few live. That's exciting. Ah, so Anne and I go way back, but Wait, not like, it's a weird way back, right? So Ann and I went to uh-huh. high school together. We went to the Illinois Math and Science Academy in Aurora, Illinois. But Ann is one year older than me. So graduated class of 1993. Correct. It was a, it was a very small school. It was like maybe 600 students when we were there, 620 or something like that, over three classes. So we, everyone kind of knows each other. And it was, and it was, a boarding school it was a public school but it was a boarding school which made it sort of unique yes absolutely um but with 600 some students everyone knew each other or knew Mm -hmm. of each other even if you weren't necessarily running in the same circles um and it seems like since i've moved back to chicago you and i've gotten much more connected much closer um and started actually like hanging out yeah which has been awesome Instead of like, oh, I'm a senior and this is a junior. Because, yeah, you know, like when right. you're an upperclassman, you sort of know the underclassmen, but you also like are into your own thing. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about those days in Amsterdam because a friend of mine's kid, which is super weird, just graduated, that I, that we could have friends that are graduate with kids who are graduating Imsa. Um, But I was just thinking about that and how how just those like that last year that senior year is just so incredibly special and how you just like are so desperate for every moment yes no like you're not going to spend the summer with these people you may never see some of these people again because they go we came from all over the state so it's not like summertime you know like you you were from a very different area of the state than I was and so like I couldn't like I couldn't just come to your house during the summertime so as she said, it's a three-year school, but people do, so sophomore, junior, senior, but some people do come in, they like skip their freshman year, right? And they just jump from eighth grade to sophomore year. Did you do that or did no, you do- No, eight- I was not a schmen. I was not a super smart person. 
I was just a normal smart person, I suppose, which is weird because I didn't even consider myself that smart. Well, we talked about this too. The I um, well, I guess I could talk about where I grew up too. Yeah, if you want me to do that? Let's start there because we had said like we grew up in different areas. I Hosha and I grew up in the middle of Central Illinois in a small farming town, right? Corn cornfields. So I grew up in the northwest suburbs, like the Hoffman State, Palatine, Schaumburg area, um, which, in my recollection, was not that diverse either. Um, so in elementary school, in my class, it was me and the Jewish girl. <laughs> so she got to do a presentation every Hanukkah, and I got to do a presentation every Lunar New Year, um, which, you know, we were sort of singled out, but then looking back, I think this was like second or third grade. I think it might've been second grade when our teacher did this. But now looking back, I feel like the teacher was really trying to celebrate our difference. But back then you're like seven or eight and you're just like, oh my God, I'm just so different. And that's when you don't want to be different from anyone. I talked about that. I talked about that in our very first episode that like when we came back from Christmas in India, you know, they would kind of make me do this presentation, stand up, and people ask you about India and you know, what's cricket like and stuff like that. And um, it was a learning opportunity. It was, it was sold as a learning opportunity for the rest of the class, especially because we're from Streeter, Illinois, which is very not diverse. And so that was good. But as again, as an introvert, I was like, I'm being shoved up on the dais and everybody else isn't like giving a presentation about how they went to the next farm for Christmas, you know? So it, it, it celebrated differences, but it also very clearly pointed them out. Well, and I think when you're a kid and there's not, there's not a lot of diversity where you are, I mean, you guys grew up in a much smaller town than I did, but I still felt that there was no diversity and you, your, your diversity sticks out like a sore thumb all the time and then you have a great teacher who wants to help you celebrate it but that's just like the last thing you want to do is shine a spotlight on your difference but now looking back and I'm like you know what made me who I am I suppose you're right which is you just look different you're you know your name is different you eat different foods you bring different foods in your lunch box and then they're like what is that why do you have two sticks yeah well, and for us, it was, you know, uh, long hair is considered a sign of beauty in India. And our parents wanted to preserve that, you know, part of the, their culture. So we couldn't cut our hair. We weren't allowed to cut our hair. And Kosh and I had both hair, are both, we both had hair that was so long that it went down past our butt, which meant we both had to wear basically braids to school every day, um, which that's just that one thing is so makes you so different. Why is your hair so long? Why are you wearing braids? And when I wore two braids, people would grab my braids and like play horsey with me and be like, "Get in your oh, Like, and you're just like, "Okay, haha, that's funny." Like maybe one the first time someone did it when I was five. It's not funny anymore, and it is super annoying and like. Get your hands off me. It is a microaggression, right? It's like, that is something that the first time you're like, oh, that's, that's in poor taste, but whatever. But like the 10th or 20th time that happens, it's like becomes 
just problematic. Not by different people. I mean, that's maybe the, the kicker of it all is that it's the same people. We went to such this, you know, our town was so small. I had 30 kids in my class. I had 30 kids in my class till I graduated. It was the same set of kids. Yeah, then that's different for me because I think growing up in the Chicago suburbs, you definitely knew like the other immigrants in your own community. And so like we would get together with them for like Lunar New Year or, you know, dinner parties. We went to Chinese, I went to Chinese school on Sundays. And then I was thinking like, I think around fourth, fifth grade, my school started getting more diverse, not necessarily more Asian, but I don't know, there were, they, maybe they changed the district lines or something. And then in junior high, definitely, you know, in junior high, the way they do it in the suburbs is like all these elementary schools even to the junior high. So I definitely then um, got to know more Asians. Um, but then, then we went to IMSA and that was like diff so different. It was. That was like opening your eyes. It was. Yeah. And I think it's, I know I talked about this on the first podcast is, you know, you come from a, a place that's pretty insular and then you go to a place like IMSA and you are with people and not just like, hey, hi, like living with people that you would never have met otherwise. Kids who literally drove the tractor before they got on the bus to go to IMSA. Kids who lived in the inner city of Chicago, who, you know, had experienced violence, had a working parent, you know, a single parent that worked and that was, you know, they were kind of on their own for most of the time. And you've got kids that come from super rich places and super poor mm -hmm. places. And it, it was really eye-opening. And for me, that it was the first time I was around many other Indian kids. Yeah, it was weird because we were stumbling around um, a critical mass of Asian Americans and a lot of them children of immigrants like we are. And which I think it was cool because like, first of all, like you didn't have to explain your quote unquote weird cultural traditions. But looking back, I think it also in that critical mass emphasized the diversity within Asians, right? Like not all, you know, East Asian women or girls are this way and not all South Asian girls are this way or boys. And we just saw diversity within our community. It was, it was really, I know some people who didn't really like it, appreciate it, didn't work for them maybe as well as they had hoped, or maybe I also know some people who had kind of been forced to go there. Um, which is maybe a downside of this like ongoing ch challenge that Asians in general have around this emphasis on education. You got to go to the best possible school. Well, and I, um, I didn't, I wasn't like jumping for joy to go, but my parents really encouraged me to go. And then they were like, just go. And if you don't like it, just come home. But then of course I ended up really liking it because I was coming from this huge, you know, suburban high school. And then I sort of, I went to this, you know, huge school, um, got the popular kids, the Jacks and everybody in between. And, and then I went to IMSA and I'm like, oh, there are people like me, sort of nerdy. So that was cool. And then you and I talked about this, how um, like IMSA, like 
so growing up, I was always a very bright kid. And, you know, I was in like a gifted math program and gifted program. And like, you know, you just felt pretty confident. And then you go to IMSA and you're like, whoa, these kids are smart on a whole nother level. And I joke, but I think this is true. Like, I got really comfortable with my mediocrity at an early age. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going to be the best person in wherever I am because now I'm with like these amazing super gifted super smart people but that's okay now I have a question because she has said similar things and I'll ask this to both of you did you also did that also help you kind of like hone in on what you're really good at because you're like well you're being comfortable with your mediocrity but then being like but I'm really good at this thing. Like, see, all of these kids are really, really smart, but they're not, I'm making this up, but like, they're not super like personable and, or they're not, they're not very good public speakers. I am really good at that. And so you were able to actually also lean in to what you're really good at, or is that, was that not? Well, that's a very mature way of thinking about it. And I wish I had the maturity (laughs) back then to actually see that. (laughs) I also just came up with the question as you were talking. So it's not like I've been thinking about it for 20 years. I mean, I maybe had the reverse where I was like, oh, I thought I was good at math. I'm not that great at math anymore. I'm okay at math. Um, I was never good at science. So this confirms I'm terrible at science. (laughs) Um, I remember like my English teacher use some of my writing as an example and she asked me if she could like circulate it to the class as an example and like thinking back I was like first of all I was just like surprised that somebody thought I wrote well because as Asian American you're not really taught to focus on English right but um but I remember she did that and now looking back I'm like just really appreciating it now um yeah but yeah, no, so the answer to your question is, I wish I had the maturity to do it that way, but no, I just really emphasized what I was not good at. <laughs> I wasn't even sure I thought about that, thought about it that way. Figuring out what you're good at takes a long time, right? You try something and you're like, okay, that's, I'm fine at that. And parsing what you're good at, and what you like to do are also two really different things, right? So yeah, I just think it, what it did, I agree with you, Anne. I felt like it took, and I always described it as like, I was a gigantic fish in a tiny, tiny pond, right? My teachers, at least in seventh and eighth grade, trusted me so much to know what I was doing that actually I was allowed to see answer keys to tests that were gonna be given out because they just figured I, I, I couldn't possibly get stuff wrong. Um, and then went to IMSA and I was like, wow, I am a little tetra in the ocean. Like that's, that was my sort of, you know, my experience of being like, but then you go, okay, so I'm a tetra in the ocean. Yeah, you're like, but that's okay. It, I think what it did is it just knocked all the pressure out of, off me to be amazing. Also, though, for you, Sheila, she, you were not the only Tetra there. I think that probably went a big way is like, it's not like everyone, like, it's not like you got there on accident, right? Like where everyone, like you snuck in somewhere, right? There were other Tetras in the ocean with you. So, Anne, I was going to ask you, 
So your high school is really good high school. The public school you would have gone to. Yeah, it is a good high school. So I'm curious because Shulushi and I have talked about this too. We moved to the suburbs where then I was able to go. I was in the district for Carl Sandburg High School in Orland Park. It was a fantastic, you know, top academic school in the state. So going to IMSA was never discussed about. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, we have said like, I would have loved it. Like I would have loved that environment and I, like I'm a huge math nerd and a science nerd and all that stuff. Those are my, all of my best subjects. Did you, was it because IMSA was like the better school? And so your parents are like, you should really look at this because it's better. Like what were, what was the Probably. Age? I mean, I, I don't know. I probably, yeah. And I'm glad I went because my high school was so big. You know, and I think it would, would have just been harder for me to find my people. The other thing, the other thing I wanted to bring up, because, you know, after we talked about my coming on this podcast, it made me reflect, made me reflect on things. And the other thing that I'm grateful to IMSA for um, is that it really opened my eyes about being Asian American in this country. Not only because, you know, like I said, there's a critical mass and you start getting to know other people and you're seeing the diversity within our own communities. But two things, like I, my senior year, I started, I don't even know if it's there anymore, the Asian Cultures Club. So with two other Asian American students. And that was just something where like, we should start this club. And then, so we did. And then the other thing, the other thing that we did and Shailushi, I think I mentioned this to you. You didn't know about it. And my memory's hazy, so I might get some facts wrong. So I apologize to whomever's listening and feels like I have the facts wrong. But I think our our junior or senior year, we had a visiting English teacher. And he was, I think he was Malaysian. He was Asian. He was Asian, Asian American. And we were like, what? There's a teacher that looks like us? And... A few of us went to him and I think we just said, hey, like you're Asian, we're Asian. Like, can you come up with like an Asian American curriculum? And he did. And I think like after school, a few hours a week, we would meet with him, like probably nine or 10 of us. And he would literally have us read things. Like I was reading, you know, like classics in Asian American studies. And then he taught us about Vincent Chen. We watched the documentary, Who Killed Vincent Chen? And that is when I realized like, this is a history of being Asian American in this country and there's racism and it sucks. And civil rights is not just like Martin Luther King. We have a role to play in civil rights and that completely opened my eyes. And I'm so grateful for that experience and to that teacher because I feel like so many Asian Americans growing up in this country, even today, like don't get that history. You have to know where you came from. You have to know where what's happened. And now, I mean, we're talking about all this like anti-Asian hate and it's like, we have to understand this is part of a continuum. It didn't just happen overnight. And it didn't just happen because our former president decided to be racist. But, and so that I'm really grateful that that experience happened because at a young, uh, at a young age, I just, I really just got a better understanding of what it means to be Asian American. It is really, really sad, I think, 
for all of us that we don't learn the, the rich, often sorrowful history of the United States and people being discriminated against, violence happening against certain communities. I think this op-ed that Tom Hanks penned in the Times just a couple of days ago about like, it took me forever to learn about the Tulsa massacre. Why don't we teach that stuff in schools? Right. And the fact that he's still getting a lot of hate, you know, he's getting hate on Twitter. He basically said, we need to teach, we need to teach people in schools, you know, the real history about what has happened, talking about, you know, black Americans, but that could be true of any group of immigrants or any racial minority group, any group that's not white, basically, that doesn't have the dominant history to say, we should be telling people what happened. We should know, you know, what happened with, mm -hmm. with anti-Asian immigration policies and the hate that was happening and, um, you know, the internment camps and what happened in internment camps and, you know, the fact that that there were mass lynchings of Asians in the West, of Chinese immigrants, of Filipino workers, that, you know, Indians and Chinese couldn't become citizens. Yeah, we were too dark. Well, as a, as a, I mean, I say this a lot when I speak about Asian American history, but I mean, as a person of Chinese descent, I wouldn't have been eligible to vote or become a citizen until 1943. That wasn't that long ago. And, and I'm not surprised that Tom Hanks is getting so much hate because there's this massive movement that's like anti-critical race theory. And yeah. I don't, I mean, for me, I don't find critical race theory controversial because it's literally knowing your history and lo looking at your history through a lens of race because you can't separate that from U.S. history. Yeah. I want to pivot just a little bit, but we're going to come back to this because I think okay. there, it's going to tie up in a second. You know, you said, you just said that you were of Chinese descent, but you're not from mainland China, correct? Correct. And I, I have been so intentional throughout my adult life of saying that I'm actually Taiwanese and not Chinese. I think I said it of Chinese descent because recently, well, we just came out of May and that was Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Although every month is AAPI month. We could celebrate it anytime, but um, I did, I was asked to speak a few times and I talked, I, I was trying to personalize the anti-Chinese laws, like the, the Chinese Inclusion Act, the PAGE Act. The, and so I was trying to personalize it by saying I'm somebody of Chinese descent, which I still am of Chinese descent, but my family is from Taiwan and I do make that distinction. Well, yeah, and I think there's a, it's important to note that being of Chinese descent is in this moment, it's a political statement. Like technically your passport would be Chinese, but it's a, but your family is from Taiwan. So my family's from Taiwan and I was born in Taiwan and I came to the States with my parents when I was two and a half, three. You know, growing up, I would say I was Chinese, but then when, like as a kid, I would say I was Chinese because we were Chinese. But then um, as I got older and started learning the difference between China and Taiwan, I became very probably Taiwanese and I still, you know, make sure I tell people I'm not from China. My family's not from China. My family's from Taiwan because there are political and cultural and social differences that I think are important to point out. How many times do you get people saying like, is there a difference? Right? Like we, I have a friend from Sri Lanka 
And if she's, you know, people are like, oh, you're from India. And she's like, no, my parents are from Sri Lanka. And they're like, isn't that the same thing? Um, I don't think I get that because I think growing up, if you said Taiwan, like most people didn't even know what that was, except for the fact that all their toys were like made in Taiwan back then. Uh, and then um, sometimes like I get the, I'll say, oh, I'm Taiwanese. And they're like, oh, I love Pad Thai. No, that's Thailand. That's a <laughs> different country. I've gotten that a few times. Yeah, the, oh, I love Pad Thai. And then I'll say, and then I usually say, if if I'm nice and trying to be polite, which I do try to do, I say, um, oh, well, that, that food is from Thailand, which is a, a very different country than Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is an island, which is not in Southeast Asia. And it used to be part of China. Uh, so I'm of Chinese descent, but yeah, you know, I just go yeah. through that whole thing and then, then they roll their eyes because now I'm giving them a sociopolitical history lesson, which all they wanted to do was tell me they like Pad Thai. Yeah. <laughs> but if you don't like the lecture, you should learn at least geography. No one is asking you to know the complicated history between Taiwan and China. Right. At least know that Thailand and Taiwan are two separate places, just because they both start with a sound. Come on. Or let's just talk about the, like, you know, walking down the street and some random guy goes, Konnichiwa. And I'm like, you're not even close. <laughs> not even close. Also, that's just racist. Yeah, it's super racist. That's just like straight up racist. That's not even a microaggression. That's a <laughs> macro. A macroaggression. That's a macroaggression. Yeah. It is. It is. What was the story that your parents told you about why you moved to the U.S.? Oh, there wasn't a story. I mean, my dad came for grad school. He got a business degree at the University of Illinois. So that's why we came. And then he um, continued with his job um, with a Taiwanese company that he was at um, before. They weren't doctors, <laughs> which might have been unusual at the time because I think there were more doctors coming in. Um, but both my parents are um, highly educated. Um, and I bring that up because for people who aren't aware, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, really one of the only ways you can immigrate here from Asia is if you were highly educated. So, you know, I was privileged in that way because my parents were highly educated. Yeah, we've talked about that. We've talked about that a few times um, with people like the from the Philippines and India and things like that. Like part of having that stereotype of like, oh, all Indian people are doctors or engineers um, is because the doctors and the engineers were the only ones allowed here. It was the immigration law. And talk about educating racists or microaggressors. I remember like in school and college, law school, high school people tell me oh you Asians are always so smart and hardworking." I mean they're that's like the coded model minority thing and I you know if I wanted to be smart I'd say well that's because it's the immigration policy and then they just don't even have any idea or I will say things like well I mean I got a leg up because the immigration policy favored highly educated people like my parents I mean this is called privilege I went to the Johnson Lyndon Johnson uh, Museum in Austin I've been there that's cool. You go through there and you're seeing all the amazing legislation that he passed, which is amazing. Um, but one of the things they do when they talk about the Immigration Reform Act in the 60s, it was focused on highly educated doctors, engineers, because the U.S. was trying to compete with the USSR in the arms race. 
and they needed doctors and engineers to come over and do the work. Yeah. Basically lift up the states. We're still doing that in a way, aren't we? We're with the tech workers. I mean, with we're hiring a lot of indie, yeah, HP one visas um, with the, you know, with a lot of workers from Asia. But yeah, absolutely. And I think people don't recognize that. And so again, it's just go back to the theme of like, know our history, know our collective history, understand why, you know, the data that you see that might feed into the model minority myth is due to laws and infrastructure. And looping back around to critical race theory, ultimately, that's all about understanding system, like systemic racism. Correct. It's right. It's not about like, my neighbor thinks they need to take shower more often. That's what, my skin is brown because I don't take showers and that's why he hates me, right? It's not about that level of ignorance that causes this, the big picture stuff. That guy's an idiot. My neighbor's not an idiot. I have two lovely neighbors, none of whom are idiots. <laughs> and I know I'm saying that because they listen to this podcast. You're a hypothetical right, My hypothetical neighbor. <laughs> they listen to this podcast. That's why she has to point it out. They're that lovely. But the systemic piece of it, how do policies, practices, you know, government laws, all of that stuff affect both individual lives, therefore populations, and how populations see each other. Right. Right. Which goes back to this Tom Hanks op-ed on, on, you know, the Tulsa massacre, which is if people understood what happened, you know, there would be at least a greater level of like this country has continuously pushed black people down and when they have the temerity to have a little bit of thing we knock them down again right it's not because they're stupid or they're lazy or they don't know how to pick themselves up by their bootstrap and that's also why i feel like you know i've i've heard definitely asian americans say well we we we're successful why can't they i.e black and brown people be successful like black and brown people who are nation be successful and i'm like because we got to link up through the immigration policy, through our parents. But not all Asians did that too. We have refugees. So, I mean, that's a whole different conversation. But, but um, and that's why I, I like also feel that Asian Americans should understand our history because we also suffered from discrimination and we benefited from the Black civil rights activists that were right along, you know, that were fighting for our rights too. And that you know, we should not, it shouldn't be us versus them. Well, the Civil Rights Act in 19, what was it, 1963, 1964, then fueled the Immigration Act. So, you know, at, at some comedian was like, they CC'd us on that email, right? Like Martin Luther King CC'd us on that email. Yeah, you, we were CC'd and now we're like, I want to leave this email string. Right. <laughs> You know, like when people are like, take me off this, like unsubscribe. Now we want to unsubscribe from that email. And it's like, no, like we shouldn't unsubscribe. Like we, we all need to stay on this email chain and think, like work together. I think what's really fascinating about it all is that like our, you know, our subgroups and sort of larger Asians or South Asians or, you know, Chinese Americans or whatever it is, we, we see what's happening to other groups and we forget, and Kosha said this, you know, multiple times, and we forget that A, it could just as easily be us, and B, it has very recently been us. And it has been us, it has been us for hundreds of years. Yes. We just 
forget or we don't know because new waves of immigrants come and then they're like well we're fine no no you weren't i mean there's such othering within these other communities mm -hmm. i mean i know for certain that in for certain indian populations there is a huge like anti-african-american threat yeah i think that's true in a, in most i mean if, if not all asian american groups. and so like what happens to us is not racism we went through a blip like after you know 9-11 brown people went through a blip uh because people were scared but we like racism happens to black people yeah like all the time right <laughs> And it does, it does, but it's like not wanting to recognize that like we're in that, in that same category. Yeah, I will say a couple of things. So after the mass shootings in Georgia in March, um, you know, the people who called me to check up on me were like my black friends, which I was completely grateful about. And they said, look, we're not, we didn't, you know, with last summer with the murder of George Floyd, and everything else that happened, it's not the same thing, but you're emotionally going through the same emotions. So they called on me and checked up on me and that was awesome. And then one of my friends said, um, I feel bad for you and I'm, I'm calling you and I wanna make sure you're okay, even though I've experienced the most anti-black racism from Asians. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like we suck. Oh, that's interesting, Anne. But she's like, I'm putting it aside because I care about you. and. But that's also um, why I think it's important like to, you know, make sure your circles are diverse. Then you learn from each other. And she knows I'm an Asian that tries not to be racist. Yeah, I think, and I'm gonna clap to this on this podcast, right? I'm gonna say it out loud, but that it is hard for me personally, I can't wanna talk about anyone else, to, to put myself out there for another community when it feels like they don't really reciprocate that, right? You know, when, when there, you know, it's been quite some time now, but there was another mass shooting of a, of, uh, a temple in Wisconsin. The Sikh shooting, the Sikh temple. No one said anything. Now I realize that we're in a very different headspace right now as a, as a population. We're much more aware of how racism plays out and how minority groups get targeted for white anger or by white anger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is a bit like, you can hear a lot of stuff about that after September 11th either, when anyone that looked like they could possibly be Indian, whether or not you were from, you know, from Pakistan or anywhere, you, you look brown, you look like you're from India, you had an Indian sounding name. That's it, right? No, that was actually weirdly, 20 years ago when I say that. Um, but it can be hard as a survivor of racism to then want to put yourself out there to be like, I am tired because I also go through this stuff and now I need to stand up for a community that's not standing up for me. Yeah, I, I hear you and that's really hard. And I have a couple thoughts. I think first of all, and you know this, it's just emotionally, it's hard, but intellectually it's not a quid pro quo yes because if it were we would never make any progress absolutely um and it's funny because right after the georgia shootings i went to a um rally in chinatown and there was a huge turnout and i said to my brother i said 
did all these Chinese people go march for Black Lives Matter like we did last summer? Because this is BS. I want to get angry because now they feel it, but it's like maybe better late than never. And I, I think also we just have to also speak up for what we want and what we need. Because I will tell you after the shootings, um, some of my really close friends didn't say anything to me. And I like said that to them. I said, I was really hurt that you didn't say anything. I said, I know it's a really difficult situation and it's hard to, to figure out what to say. And I think all I just really want to hear from you is to call me or text me and say, I don't know what to say, but I'm just thinking about you. And, you know, and I don't do that. I have to work on that myself. Like there's been an increase in anti-Semitic attacks and I didn't do anything for the first few days. And then I realized, oh, I'm doing the same thing that I like called out my friends for doing. So then I texted some of my Jewish friends. It's just, we're a work in progress, but I totally hear you. I mean. And I, 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 say, I say that I imagine a lot of people from different groups feel similarly that like, oh, nobody stands up for my group or other people aren't standing up for my group and it's happening to my group. And also my group isn't standing up for other groups when it happens to them, right? I mean. So it becomes a, it becomes a negative feel like then no one's fucking standing up. Right, exactly. And that's where like white supremacy wins because they're the only ones standing up and being loud. And it is definitely, it's exhausting, right? It ex it's exhausting when you care about that stuff and every, it happens so often there's a point when you're like, uh, like I personally can't, but the second piece of it too, I think is how much we're always fighting for life better from better angels, right? To do for others who have not done for you because it is the right thing to do. Yeah. Even though what you might want to say is where were you and I needed help? That is not how the world gets better. The world gets better when people help, even though they haven't had that happen to them. Yeah. I will say to your point about where were you when my community was going through things like this. So when the Georgia shootings happened, I like, at first I was just very emotionally numb or I didn't have a reaction because so much of this stuff happens all the time and no one cares. The media doesn't report it. So I was like, whatever, it's just another day of my group, you know, experiencing whatever and then this year it did start getting attention and people were speaking out black celebrities were speaking out athletes were speaking out and I went to a uh, march in Logan Square and I really thought it'd be like 30 people all Asians it was huge and it, there were white people and black people and brown people and queer people and I said to my friend who came with me I said I never ever in my life expected to see this many people from different backgrounds come march for me because my people have been invisible in this country in my entire life so that was that was heartening now that's interesting that like I think I think just listening to you and this is just a theory or hypothesis See, I'm a really good scientist. I say hypothesis instead of theory. Um, that it's um, that this year it started like last year and this year it started getting more um, attention. The same with like there was a, a critical change, right? Like with with the George Floyd situation and then the protests. 
um, George Floyd murder, let's just call it what it is, but that two things that one, people were home. And so they, they had this constant look at like how bad things were. And then also because of the coronavirus, most 99% originating, you know, from a, some kind of animal transfer in China, that there was this like, we can't look away from the Asian hate that's going on because it's in retaliation to this thing that we are experiencing in real time. Although I will say last year when Trump was calling it the China flu and what else did he call? Kung flu. People were not Kung flu. People were not speaking out. Um, But I will say, I think because of all the Black Lives Matter activism that, um, that was awakened in a lot of people last year, Again, I mean, you know, we have to be grateful for the Black activists because they built a foundation where we could have these conversations this year when it was a different group. So I'm like, this is sort of history repeating itself where, again, thank you for the activists of Black Lives Matter because you created another foundation for us to have these types of conversations. They CC'd us on this email. They CC'd us again. You know, and and I think that that perspective, just when you said that, I was like, Oh, people bust their ass every day. And the Black community has been busting its collective ass for everybody for the last God knows how many hundreds of years, basically. Well, yeah. And also, like, thank you, Black voters in Georgia, because now we have a functioning government that distributed vaccines. You know, thank you. Thank you, Black women voters in Alabama. I mean, you know, we, I acknowledge, we... They do the hard work. They do every day. Absolutely. And they get fucking nothing for it, except for like a high five once we're all done biting our nails at high tension. Um, okay. So we talked a little bit about your background. You said you have a brother. I have a younger brother. Yeah. He lives in Chicago. Is he older than you? Is no, he's younger. younger. Yeah. Yeah. So you came by yourself with your parents. He was he was a um, he was like six months old. He was a few months old. He was a baby. But we were both born in Taiwan, naturalized citizens, naturalized U.S. citizens. Yeah, during the um, during the pandemic last year, when Taiwan had like such a great control, I was like, oh, why do we give up? There were two times when I was like, why do we give up our Taiwanese citizenship? Once when once when. I was like, oh, the pandemic's so under control. I'm seeing my cousins on Facebook, like living normal lives. And then second, when I wasn't sure who was going to win the election. And I was like, I may have to figure out a way to get to Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, and well, it's interesting that you bring up that point about Taiwan having, it's the, for, the initial part of the pandemic, everything being really great. Because that was, the numbers in India were surprisingly low for the conditions under which Indians live. And now it's like out of control. And if things have not changed in Taiwan from the last time I heard about it, Taiwan was experiencing a resurgence as well, correct? They are, yeah. But the population is so much smaller. It's so much smaller than India. I, I have confidence in Taiwan getting it under, under control. And um, a couple of Democratic senators, including our Senator Tammy Duckworth, was in Taiwan for a few hours this, today, um, the day of the recording, saying that you know, pledging some vaccines. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, and like, certainly there are many, many differences between the two 
nations. I can even, if China's gonna be mad at me, I'll put nations in quotes. Yeah, you gotta be careful. Taiwan is a renegade province, according to mainland China. A renegade province? It's a renegade province. Those are like fighting words, man. Well, mainlanders, because I used to go to China a lot for work, and mainlanders definitely feel like Taiwan is part of China. And when I was actually there for work, I would never tell them what I really thought because I don't want to get arrested. Okay. All I right. mean, I'm joking, but you never know. I mean, but are you? Right, exactly. I was just, well, that's why I said I can put nations in quotes because we're talking about like two different, like sovereign, sovereign entities. Well, I don't know. China doesn't even think Taiwan is sovereign. I really hope that our podcast gets big enough that the nation of China can get mad at you for saying yeah, that. Yeah, that would be awesome. They're going to kick you. They're going to kick you out of, off of WeChat. That's right. That's right. Or WhatsApp. That's done. Right. There's so many differences, not the least of which is the amount of order that the government can impose on how its citizens act and operate, right? Mm-hmm. Well, don't, I, I forget sometimes that China, Taiwan, sorry, that Taiwan was under martial law until the 1980s. But then it's now opened up, it's a functioning democracy um, with civil rights. Um, it was the first Asian jurisdiction, I suppose, because I don't want to piss off China and say nation. It was the first Asian jurisdiction that um, legalized like certain gay marriage recently. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I, 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 you know, I am proud to say I'm from Taiwan because of just, you know, the democracy it's built and the civil society and the food. We have the best food in the world. Yeah, we went to China. Yeah, we went to China uh, several years ago. Batsy was three. And we really, really, really wanted to go to Taiwan. We just couldn't, like, fit it in onto the trip. But I'm like, that's going to be, I I feel like that's, like, just a separate trip. Like, we just need to go to Taiwan. One thing I, the foodie thing, I think Taiwanese are, like, really serious foodies. It's just ingrained in our growing up. And my brother and I, like we were, when we were growing up, we would go to Taiwan during the summers, but then there was a stretch of time where we hadn't gone to Taiwan. And during that stretch of time was when like cell phones and then smartphones came into being. And so my brother and I, like we take pictures of our food. And then a few years ago, we actually went back to Taiwan and then we would be eating at restaurants and everyone's taking pictures of their food. So I remember training my brother. I'm like, oh, it's not us. It's just our DNA. It's our people. It's our people. Like we're connecting with our people from oceans away. We didn't even know it because we started taking pictures of our food and our people take pictures of their food. Just like normal, not not to be an influencer, like not to post. You just take pictures of it. I mean, sometimes you post, but sometimes you don't. But you just take it. You admire it. Interesting. I don't think India has, India's not a restaurant-based country. It might be now because it's much more, you know, it's opened up, it's much more international. Um, there's, you know, a lot of business that goes there um, and it has several tech hubs. So it might be more now in those places, but certainly when we were growing up, it was not, it was not a restaurant-based country and it's not even a foodie-based country. Like the food is good, but it's not like, ooh, we should try this thing. A great thing that's part of Taiwanese culture is um, which a lot of cultures have, including India, is street food. Um, yeah. And, but it's like, you just get amazing street food. Like, just really good food. And it's not, 
and it, it could be something that's also served at a fine restaurant, but it can also just be like, you know, a more simpler snack. And then I don't know if you've ever heard of Taiwanese night market, but that's a thing too. Oh, we need to go experience that. Yeah. And it's awesome because like at night, you know, you go to these night markets and they have stalls where they can sell clothes and wares and things like that. Sometimes they're like trendy boutiques, sometimes they're on the top, but then there's food too. So you're just like walking around eating food. I mean, like some of the best food I've ever had in my life were in a, were from Taiwanese night market. I feel like for the podcast, we need to do an I am speaking site visit. So Yeah, right. That's right. Why don't we just once once it gets COVID on. under control? Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. Absolutely. You know, it's it's really interesting. You talk about all this stuff. Like, we spend a lot of time in India too. First, uh, we would go back every other year. My mom still had a lot of family there, and my dad's mom still was there for a long time. Um, and yet, you know, a lot of people talk about going back to the countries that their parents came from and doing all these cool things and yeah, we didn't do any of that, which I think is like, like on, I can count three fingers, the amount of times that we ate like street food. Oh, really? Oh, we didn't go anywhere. We played a lot of gin rummy. I was going to say, I don't know if that was not like a public safety thing, but literally like a food and water safety thing. Yeah, I was, I didn't want to stereotype, but I have, my South Asian friends have often told me that, you know, the water is not that safe. Oh, no, that's not stereotyping. That's for real. And so it's like, maybe you don't want to go out because you don't want the quote unquote, the deli belly. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was, I went back to India myself, uh, by myself after my freshman year in college and I got water. We, I was taking the, a bus from my grandparents, my mom's parent place to my dad's parents town um, and stopped and bought water at a stall and it gave me dysentery. Like it was the sickest I have ever been in my entire life. I literally laid on the bathroom floor and prayed for death to come take it. Like it was so bad. That sounds awful. I will say some of my Daisy friends have said, oh, I'm going to India this summer. Hopefully I'll come back one pound lighter because I'll just have some water. Like they're like sort of joking, but they're not. And I'm just like, oh. Like hopefully they won't actually do that because my, we went uh, when Shilushi's number one child was uh, a year old, so 12 years ago, almost 13 years ago, and my husband Brian got some water somewhere, and he got gastroenteritis, and he lost 12 pounds. Was it bottled water, even the bottled water? Most likely, it was like in the, in the shower or something that he just got a little bit of water in his mouth, and um, brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth when we brush our teeth with bottled water. and They say that in parts of China, you've got to be careful too. Like, um, you know, I was told, because again, I, I've been there for work quite a few times and I was told like, don't get the ice cubes from a restaurant because you don't know where the water's from. And then um, they said, if the, if the hotel puts bottled water at, at your sink, that means you need to brush your teeth with the bottled water. And I was like, oh. That's, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could could have been anything. All right. Back back to it. So we were talking about Taiwan and its amazing food and its clean water compared to India. <laughs> do you miss Taiwan? Like, do you still go back regularly? 
Um, I'd like to go back regularly. Um, I mean, I still have family there and, you know, it'd be nice to see my family, but Taiwan's just, no, it's just, um, it's just like a really great corner of Asia. And I think Americans are starting to like, it's starting to get more attention. I've had more friends visit. I think it's because it's, this sounds horrible. This sounds like so like, like obnoxious American tourists, but it's clean. You know, like there's really good public transportation, like a lot of people speak English. There's like great food. You don't have to worry about the water. When we went to China, a lot of our, and we are seasoned travelers, Brian and I, and Batsy. Um, and we heard a lot of people like shocked. Oh my God, like there's so many people there. It's so big. It's so this and that. And like it, it, I can see where you're coming from is like, as an American tourist, if you're going to go to Asia, like you're going to seek out something that's a little more comfortable. Right. It's more comfortable. And, and there, it's a small Island, but there's still like really amazing um, mountains and beaches. Okay. I'm 100% looking up tickets to Taiwan. Yeah. It's like there, <laughs> if you like Hello Kitty, there's an Eva Air Hello Kitty flight that goes from Chicago to Taipei. It's only certain times of the week. So when I was looking at tickets, I'm like, I definitely need to take the Hello Kitty flight because like every good Asian girl, I'm obsessed with Hello Kitty. I actually love My Melody. I love My Melody too. And Little Twin Stars. And Bad Bats Maru. This is part of your, this is part of your like first generation story. Can we talk about Hello Kitty? Yes. I don't understand. Like, I know what it is. You don't understand the obsession. What's the allure? Right. Yeah, I just gave you the big eyes. Like, how do you not know? No, I know what Hello Kitty is. No, I know that you know what the thing is. How do you not understand the like, who? I do not obsessed with Hello Kitty. How are you not obsessed with her? I'm not a good Asian, apparently. I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. Well, we knew that. We knew that. So wait, here's the thing. Coach admitted that she was good at math and science. And you and I said we weren't that great at math and science and that might be the (laughs) trade-off yeah like you're not perfect kosha and the massive imperfection is your failure to be obsessed about hello kitty that's my fatal flaw that's like gonna be the thing that get takes me you're like kryptonite oh my god (laughs) somewhat like if she lucy and i were like someone was trying to blackmail us and they like involved hello kitty that would work or maybe, no, that's not a good analogy. Put that no, out. No, because then I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't need yeah. that. No, but I get what you're saying. Like, like there's going to be, like, there's a hostage situation. Yeah. And the clues to saving the hostages will be buried within Correct. Hello Kitty. Like, there will be an escape room. And you will not be able to escape because there will be a Hello Kitty related thing. You're going to be like, I have no idea. I'm going to be like, I'm stuck here. I Because who now. is this random cat? This is awesome. I'm, watching, I'm looking at it right now. And they have all the characters on the flight they have um i i've had friends that have taken the flight and they've sent me pictures and there's like hello kitty toilet paper which if you go to h mart you can also buy hello kitty toilet papers that's not the same as like being on a flight but like on first class like your amenities kit is all hello kitty how have you not taken this flight because i have because we've had a pandemic Oh, it's recent. So this is, I just well, wanted it's to it's like be... a few years, like I think it started a few years ago, like Ava started coming to O'Hare. 
But I, I, as to your question as to like why Asian girls are obsessed with Hell Kitty, I just like have no idea. But that's just like something I don't know. She speaks to us. She doesn't speak. <laughs> we're just we're like we're like you know we just have a connection. You have a connection. Hello Kitty, my melody. The whole game. Who's my, who's my melody? The, the bunny. She's she's a bunny. She's all pink. There's there's <laughs> other characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's like yeah. a frog. Oh my god. There's a there's a penguin. That's like a badass penguin. That's my favorite, Bad Bats Maru. We've been talking about how like I steal your friends, Shulshi. I'm pretty sure that Anne's like we're not. You're not gonna steal me. I'm not gonna be your friend. We can still be friends. I'm just gonna be like ramming Hello Kitty down your throat to try to get you <laughs> obsessed with her. We I may have missed the window. So here's what I think though. I think that when we were growing up, and it let's see, I don't know if it's like. I don't know what's happening like younger generations. But when we were growing up, that was like the only thing. It was a cool thing that came from overseas. That's correct, yes. And it was from Asia. Yes. And it was like the characters were like, I mean, they're universal, but it was from Japan. And it was for, I mean, Hello Kitty is huge in Taiwan, clearly, because there's a Hello Kitty themed flight to Taiwan. There, There's a whole part of the... Taipei Airport that I think is like Hello Kitty. I remember that. And maybe for me, it was like, this is a connection to Asia, even though it's not blatantly Asia. I, I like your hypothesis. And that in the States, it was clearly from Asia. Nobody really knew, like white people didn't really know, like, is this from Taiwan or is this from China? Is this from Japan? Like they just, it was from Asia with the broad brush Asia. And it was cool. It was cool, or the white girls didn't really know about it. So, like, I would have, like, the Hello Kitty pencil case, and they'd be like, what is this? And I'm like, I'm just way cooler than you, and you don't even know. Exactly. It was it was cool and currency. There's a nonstop flight to Taipei from Chicago. Is it the Hello Kitty flight? It's the Eva Air one. I don't know if that's... You got to check. You got to Google Hello Kitty. Oh, my goodness. Specific flight type. Okay. But I don't, I'm saying. Oh, but I forgot you don't care. You just I don't need to eat. be on that flight. You just want to eat. I'll and meet. Lucy and I are like, we need to hang yeah. out with Hello Kitty in the airport. I'll meet you guys there a couple days later, whenever the Hello Kitty um, flight so, arrives. When I thought, like, you see my eyes, like, oh my God, because it's not just Hello Kitty. It's like many different it's characters. Of, it's all of them. I think also because the, the, themes that they had were like very cheerful but not like Disney sugary it was just sort of like Hello Kitty's going to school with her friends Hello Kitty's going on the market Hello Kitty's going to make you toast in this Hello Kitty toaster you're like cool like Hello Kitty you're such a great friend so her name is not Kitty yeah her name is Kitty her name is Kitty White Oh, goodness. Okay. Oh, wow. You know even more about her than I do. No, I I just, I have to admit, I just read that when I was looking up the Eva air flight because then they're like, we're going to personalize your trip for you. And they have a whole personalized thing about Hello Kitty's personalized trip on the Hello Kitty airline. That's definitely bucket list for me. Like Hello Kitty flight to Taiwan. I'm with you. I so want to go on that flight. Yeah. I'm, we're there. And Kosha's like, I'm just going to take the regular flight. Can I just take the regular flight and go eat street food in Taiwan? Do whatever you want. Oh my so god. So how, how many of your Asian American guests have talked about their obsession of the Hello Kitty? 
You. Okay. It's just you. But I, you know they're all obsessed about it. Right. Wait, you're the first person to bring it up. To bring it up and say on the podcast. Right. But I bet if we went back and asked everybody, they'd be like, oh my God, yes. I was saying as an Asian American girl growing up, I think Hello Kitty is so integral to our experience, to a lot of our experience. I was also lucky because a local mall um, in my suburb had a Sanrio store. Which is a, what is that? That Sanrio is a company that owns okay. all those properties. And I would go there all the time as a little girl. Like my parents knew like every time we went to the mall, I had the same real store and I spent all the time there. And then as an adult, I remember going to the mall and continuing like going to the same real store and buying stuff. And my dad said like, you're an adult and you're, you're still buying this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'll buy it till the day I die, dad. <laughs> this, I mean, I bought a Hello Kitty list sports stack first during the pandemic because I just had to. And I brought it, I brought it to the anti-Asian rally in Logan Square. If something brings you joy, why would you deny yourself that? It's just yeah, exactly. I just actually just read an article recently about like adults don't be it was it was an op-ed or whatever. Don't be embarrassed about your enjoyment of things aimed at kids. Like the world's kind of a tough place. Like, why do you have to beat all of that stuff out of you? But the thing is, it, she's not aimed at kids, though, because there's, like, Swarovski jewelry. There's Le Sport Set purses. There's, like, I mean, she is licensed the heck out of, you know, she, there's so much licensing. And there's plenty of adult, adult products as well. No, I, I guess I just mean, like, something that you loved as a child doesn't need to be something that you give up as an adult because it's, quote, unquote, childish. Well, I would say like the, the like sci-fi uh, community, the sci-fi fan community is, um, has been under attack, not under attack, but like they have been, you know, put down and talked down upon because of that. Like, how can you, what, you still like Star Wars, you still like Star Trek. And, um, you know, there's a, there's, there is a lot of that with like, that's considered a baby thing. Well, I think it's interesting because I feel like the sci-fi thing has gotten so big because, you know, the Star Wars franchise has just exploded and so has Star Trek. Um, and then Dungeons and Dragons has gotten so huge amongst adults. Yeah. 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 I never played oh, yeah. it, but I have plenty of friends who play it and I'm just like, good for you. Like, you know, keep on, keep on going. So I wanted to pivot a little bit and um, talk about, you know, and, and kind of pull this together because you are incredibly active with the kind of the, the like you, you've talked about marching several times and protesting and you are like truly an activist. Um, I don't know if you heard. I don't consider myself an activist, but I guess. Why, why is, why is that? Well, I guess because I, I don't know, because I feel like I'm not even doing that much, but I do speak out. And I guess you can define yourself as an activist if you speak out. When you're trying to act against the white supremacy, you're an activist. That's true. And there are many different ways of being an activist, right? I think I don't like marches. I just don't, I, I get, that's where my anxiety comes out because I'm like, this is a lot of people all packed next to each other. What if 
some, I, I just have like stampede anxiety, really. But you incorporate that work in your actual work. I'll write the checks, man. I'll just write the checks. Like, okay, I'm not going to do the march, but I will write a big check to an organization that I deeply believe in the work that they're doing. Not everyone has to be, you know, laying down on the tracks all the time, basically. You need all of those different types of activists. You know, like my way, I don't, I don't like, I don't like uh, protests or like marching. I don't like marching because it gives me anxiety. Like I feel so yeah, tiny and this huge, right? But I'm like, well, now we can't do anything because like I, I can't do anything. But like this, the whole idea of this, the whole idea of this podcast was my way of being like, we need to get these voices out there. That's and amazing. you know, that that's the activist part of me and the writing of the checks. I do a lot of donating, but, um, but yeah, so, so you, you are an activist and you do a lot of speaking out. Um, what is your, I mean, with, with the anti-Asian hate crimes that are going on, what have been some of your experiences with like how people talk about them? How, like, are people trying to say like, oh, what I've heard is uh, a couple of people saying like the Atlanta shootings were, well, they were, they were sex workers or they were blah, blah, blah. And that's why, that's why, like trying to excuse it. Um, is that something that you have, can you like, can you talk about your activism, especially in the last few months? I've been, like, I, I do speak, you know, on panels or like for diversity, equity, inclusion related seminars. And I will bring that up. For example, I was asked to speak on a diversity, equity, and inclusion, like legal seminar, maybe a few weeks after the um, shooting. And then after all these marches and I started seeing like, oh, there's all this media attention. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this before where I was asked to speak. The person said, oh, can you speak because this is, um, you know, this is such a new thing. And I said, well, actually it's not a new thing because Asian Americans have been facing discrimination and violence for hundreds of years. And the person said, oh, well, then this is why you're perfect to speak because you need to talk about that. And, and then, but then when I got the, the outline for the panel, like there was like barely anything on there about it. So I spoke up and I said, look, like we're missing an opportunity. I'd like to have some time. And the panelists were great. And they said, absolutely, like take as much time as you want. Um, so I took, you know, a little bit of time at the beginning, just sort of talking about the history. And a lot of them didn't know the history either. Um, so I've, I've just been, for me, I've really been talking about, like I have today, the long history of discrimination, not because this is a Prussian Olympics, but because we have to understand where we came from, right? Like, it's not, I'm not trying to say we've been screwed over the most, it's not the Prussian Olympics. And I truly believe that- Yeah, that's, that's the Olympics you don't want to win. Like, you don't want to medal at the Prussian Olympics. Yeah, we don't even want to participate in it because it's all bad just different ways. And, and the other thing too is um, I, I do think there's gotta be data on this. I just don't have it, but th I do think a lot of Asian Americans and Asian immigrants don't know this. I believe it. Right? And so I think it's really important. I mean, I was, I'm on the board of an Asian Bar Association and I said this during one of our Zoom calls. I said, you know, I, I do think a lot of our community is not educated on this. Um, and PBS has this great series called Asian Americans. You should all watch it. 
watch it because they made it free. And a few people did text me and said, I actually watched it and I was blown away. I did not realize this was our history. Oh, Asian, like Asian. Asian Americans. Are texting you. Okay. Yeah. Um, And I think for me, I mean, our education system did not teach me this. I thought it out my entire life. Right. You know, so if I was actively seeking it out and people aren't actively seeking out, they probably know zero. Right. Right. Or very little. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, it's like for our community and the people outside of our community, it's important to know our history. Just like you said, you know, it's important to know about the Tulsa race massacre um, because that informs where we are today and where we want to go. And then it becomes less easy, right? It becomes more difficult for other people to get, like sweep that, sweep these individual incidents. I put that in quotes because they become, now you start seeing that they're not individual incidences, right. that this is, you know, just a, a link in the chain of all of the oppression that has happened. Exactly. For decades. Like the continuation of always dealing Asians as the other, the yellow peril. Um, it's connected to, you know, post 9-11, you know, just thinking all brown people were terrorists, racial profiling. So can you talk about that? Can, so for people who don't know what yellow peril is, can you talk, what is it? Can you inform our reader or our readers? Our well, listeners? very, very generally, and I encourage people to Google it because Google is your friend in these situations. Um, but um, so yellow is commonly the label that they give East Asians and um, which is hilarious because I don't think I have yellow skin but I don't know um for the record you are not yellow yeah um and yellow peril is just this idea that East Asians and East Asian immigrants have been considered like a threat um and so there was a Chinese exclusion act starting in the 1880s that banned all immigration from China and I think from other countries as well. And that's an example of yellow peril where these Chinese workers were viewed a threat. And, you know, a perfect example of yellow peril is when our former president um, last year called this the Kung Flu, the China virus, and even his rhetoric when it was outside of the coronavirus was just making China the enemy. And, you know, and then this is what, then people start, you know, literally viewing Asians as a peril. Um, and there've been instances where, you know, researchers of Asian descent feel like they're being targeted, um, you know, being accused of espionage because they're from Asia. That's another example. Um, so that's yellow peril. When you start to dig a little bit. You don't even have to dig very far. Yeah. We start to just like literally with a spoon kind of scrape some of it back and everything just breaks open and you see, you know, that's all connected, right? And 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 you talk about like in the 1800s, Chinese workers were seen as the threat to American jobs, American workers. Well, now who is it? It's, it's Mexicans or some other group. Or Indian tech workers and migrant workers. 
just names, pick someone. It doesn't even matter who it is, right? It's first, it was these people, then these people, then these people. It's always someone else's fault. Right, jobs, these people are taking our jobs. You know, Chinese workers in the the railroad out west, I hope people know that, you know, the Chinese were responsible responsible for building a huge part of the rail, railroad out west. And they were paid far less wages than other workers. Their living conditions were awful. And they were like lowered in baskets with sticks of dynamite and to like dynamite away the, but to dynamite the path. And like some of them would die, but the Chinese workers were doing that. Yeah, right. So is, is, is Yellow Peril like almost the opposite it, it's like diametrically opposed to the whole like model minority myth. Correct. Which is then so ironic because like, I mean, it's like we have this positive stereotype when it suits the white narrative, the white supremacy narrative. And then we have this yellow peril stereotype for the other, for other stories. I think they're two, they're, they're just two sides of the same coin, which is the good Asians these are the good Asians. These are the good Asians that, you know, are basically are good Americans because they do, they have jobs and they're good consumers and they buy the houses and they send their kids to school and the kids school, you know, they do well. And then nobody says anything. Nobody. You put your like, head down, you don't speak out, but don't, but make sure, but make sure not too many of your kids go into Harvard because then we'll sue you. Yeah, exactly. The, the flip side of that is if this is just like, oh, I average person says, I couldn't do that. That's a model minority. Those are good Asians. The average worker looks down and says, those people are taking my jobs because I could get lowered in a basket with a stick of dynamite and blow stuff up and maybe die, right? It's just, but yet when, you know, when immigration was severely restricted during the last presidency, Jobs were being unfilled because nobody wants to make beds in hotels. Nobody wants to pick lettuce in fields. That is hard ass work. Right. Nobody wants to do They don't want to work in a chicken right. processing plant. And yet, but it's still like they're taking our jobs. Well, I'm sorry. Do you want to pick lettuce in a hot sun bent over for 10 to 12 hours a day? Sleep in, you know, shacks basically get driven around, hot, dusty, blah, 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 and make like a dollar an hour. Right. Or the alternative is we'll pay you and then a head of lettuce is $15. Yes. And nobody wants to do that either. I think like, I don't mean diametrically opposed in the way that like- They don't fit. That they're opposite and that, right, they don't fit. It's more like, okay, uh, just to be like sarcastic, but like, well, isn't that convenient, white people? It is convenient. Or like- so either, you know, Asians are model minority, they're perfect, they're workers, and they're like the good immigrants and blah, 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 um, or they're dangerous and horrible and we should be scared of them. Like, but they have made it so they actually are two sides of the same coin. Right. And now it's like, what a convenient way for you to fit your narrative into this experience. Right. The pandemic has showed us that 
people do not have internal consistency in their oh, yeah, logic, yeah. right? Like it's a hoax that I need to wear a mask for people who, it's a hoax, but you don't need a vaccine or you should get a vaccine, but then I need to wear a mask to protect myself against people who are vaccinated because none of these things make sense. And yet people can hold all of these, you know, talk about diametrically opposed ideas at the same time and feel 100% like, you know, like, righteous or like committed to all of those ideas and you how do you do that um and yet people somehow manage to do that so, well i think the model minority is such a great con too because it cons so i mean most of the asian american community i mean i i don't know if i ever thought of myself as the model minority but i used to think like oh i know this is bad but like but this is actually me, like, this is so weird, right? But then you realize, well, no, it's not really you, but this is just a stereotype. Yeah, and you're right, it does, that's a really good way of keeping us in our place too, to be like, right. oh, but, but you're the good ones. You're so smart and you're so this, and you know, you're just so, you just fit right in here, i.e. Well, let's, let's break down too, like why even though we, the three of us seemingly are the model minorities, why we still believe that's dangerous. Because first of all, it lumps us all together and the model minority doesn't give us a voice. It doesn't want us to have a voice. And we are speaking. Exactly. It also veils, it veils blatant racism in terms of like, you know, this this whole thing about like, oh, all Indian people are, are doctors and engineers. And you're like, well, I'm not. So what, does that make me a bad Asian? Or does that, you know, like, I'm not one of those things. So like, and hey, that's like a racist statement. And then it gives the ability to say like, well, that's a good, like I'm saying a good thing about Asians, right? And so you can't get mad at that. It, it, it silences the ability to have a conversation about racism because it's like, but I'm saying good things. Well, it also doesn't make us immune from racism because I ever since a few months ago, when I go take a walk in my neighborhood, even though I live in Chicago, I carry pepper spray with me. And I saw on Facebook that some Asian woman in my neighborhood said she was, somebody hurled, you know, racial epithets at her. So it doesn't make us immune from attacks. And it also um, um, covers over a huge swath of Asian Americans that aren't doing great. And, and then we're never, and we're, I feel like because we're considered a minority, we're not truly integrated in discussions about diversity, equity, inclusion, or race. Like we're, we're copied. Sometimes we're copied on the email. Sometimes we're not. But we're copied on the email. It's never to us. Like we're right. Like the email is like, they're like, oh, we should include the Asian people, but it's never about that group, uh, us as a group. That's true. That's just, yeah. That's like on a group level, right? I think ultimately, it also has like real impacts, like individually, like Koshi were saying, well, I am not a doctor and engineer. I do something that's different and somehow it, it makes me lesser than. You feel like a failure. Yeah, you feel like a failure. That's for people who don't follow those paths, right? 
for people who do, it's because they, some people feel like they have to. And what does that do then to any number of things? I, I If you're Indian and you feel like you have to be a doctor because you're, you're being, that's what you're expected to do. Your parents want you to do that. Society wants you to do that. You want to be an artist. Not okay. Right. You're a, you're, the world is short one artist who would have been an amazing artist because that's what where your heart was. And the world is short one doctor who would have been an amazing doctor because that's where that person's heart is. But you're taking that person's spot because you feel like you have to. Or maybe you're not, or maybe you're not going to be a good doctor because your heart's not in it. The world is now short a good doctor who's passionate yeah. about helping, right? Like uh, healthcare. You're, yeah. You're denying your other people an opportunity to be amazing, and you're denying yourself an opportunity to be amazing. And like, the more we think about, or the more I think about, we talked about this in our episode with Karen, our therapist. I remember that. Generational yeah. trauma and how much expectations oh, yeah. from, you know, the, the generations behind us inform what we do. Well, if the expectation is to be a model minority and to keep it going and don't step off the path, it, we live with that trauma of what, of the, the disappointment of expectations if you step out or the disappointment and, and the misery of doing something that you don't really want to do in your heart somewhere else, really somewhere else, right? Yeah, and I, 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 I'm sure you guys have thought about this and read things about this in the last few months too. The, the idea of for a lot of parents, Im, Asian immigrant parents, um, of our parents' generation who push, you know, the doctor, the lawyer, whatever. That was a mode of survival, which I acknowledge, but it, like you said, there's a lot of trauma involved in that. Like for me, you know, just being able to speak from my experience that I'm in pharmaceutical sales. I, Shayla, she had mentioned this um, last week is that that means I stick out inside my own community. Like, why did you step out? Like, this is what we are expected to do. And I stick out outside of my community because there is that racist like idea, like all Indians are, are doctors. So I can't win. And that's the whole idea of racism, right? Is separation and, and oppression. Well, you never truly belong and you're the other anywhere. I'm always othered because of, I don't fit inside my own community or having head stepped out. You know, like you don't like Hello Kitty. I was not a science major. I was a political science major, which was like, you're what? It's science. It's still science. <laughs> that's what, the word science That's what I it. say, but my friends have uh, bachelor's of science degrees just look at me and roll their eyes when I say I majored in science, political science. Well, also on the flip side, I have a master's in arts in health, health, health policy and bioethics. So it's like not at all art. And having seen me do any kind of art, people would be like, no, you're not a master of that. Oh, the ma <laughs> so, your degree is yeah, masters of art. Yeah, it's an MA. I have an MA, but in health policy and bioethics. So are you still, uh, you've talked about your parents a little bit and your brother. Are you still really close with your family? Yeah, they all live nearby. So we see each other when we can, not during the pandemic. Now, do your parents 
do your where this like pride of you know calling yourself Taiwanese and and separate like I'm not Chinese I'm Taiwanese do your parents do that too because I I bring this up because like our last name our our um, maiden name is B-A-X-I and the way to pronounce it properly is Bakshi the x is a like a ksha sound so when my but when my parents came here and like all of their siblings also it's like we're we say backsy because it's easier it's taxi with a b it's just it was a way of watering down things so it was just easier to fit in right easier to introduce yourself and stuff um is that is there a similarity there with like your parents in terms of like, did they say, and do they say, like, we're from Taiwan, or did they, was it just easier to say you were from China? No, they didn't really say we're from, I mean, they would say we're from Taiwan, but I, I'm, like, consciously and centrally, I make that distinction. I don't know if they would do it as much as I would, just because I'm just, well, I think also somebody who is a political science major and appreciates the differences, I, you know, for me, I'm like, we're not part of that mainland system. We're different. You had so like you're still close to your parents. You you know you go back to Taiwan. Uh, you're close to your brother. What is some of the what are some of the words in your personal femalect that even like stem from your culture and your background and your parents' immigration story? Yeah, I thought about that, and I can't think of like a, a specific word. But we, especially when I'm around my parents, we do the like half English, half Mandarin. So, you know, we do a lot of that. How about like translation? So the one thing that we've noticed is uh, several, and we're the same, several people have been like, we don't have a word, we don't have that. But for example, we say, um, go for a shower instead of take a shower because my parents like translated oh. that. And now I say that to my daughter, right? So, and the other one is um, close, close, the, lights, close yeah. the lights. We say I used to say that when I was growing up, but then I had very strict English teachers that corrected my grammar. I think that's the thing. I think I was so anal about grammar and because I'm an attorney and words are so important in particular that I just sort of maybe just whitewashed it. Yeah. Which is also very interesting in that perspective of being like, what you had to do professionally was actually like kind of just suspend or bury some of that femalect it because your the expectation i mean that's the whole thing of like you know um like black a lot of black comedians talk about talking white like that like dave Chappelle does an amazing like he can turn it on and off and he's like if i'm in a meeting with nbc executives or netflix executives i sound like this this is what I sound like with my friends. So, and he's able to turn that. And I, I mean, that's kind of what you're saying is like, you had to push that away in order to. I think I was also such a, like growing up, I was such a stickler for grammar that I think I just like corrected myself. I was a very good speller. I was a very good speller. I was a very good, very good grammar when I was in law school for the lawyers out there will know this. Like I was very good at sight checking. I just, corrected myself to that like corrected my family like I diluted my family um but like do you, then do you correct your parents do I, they use, I used to do correct they... them but now I just feel like that's really rude because I feel like you know you got to respect the immigrant oh I have I did I did do something today I realized 
So in Mandarin, there's this phrase where you say like, you're afraid of the heat. Like if it's really hot or you don't like hot weather, just say like, um, like translated as, um, I'm afraid of the heat. And so today, my friend who is not, who's not um, Asian, she, we were trying to get together and do a walk and it, you know, it's, it's hot today. And she really wanted to walk at a different time because she like, she gets hot steps. And I actually said, oh, because you're afraid of the heat. And she like looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I realized I was literally translating the Mandarin of like, when you don't like hot weather. Can you say it in Mandarin? Oh yeah, it's a paja, like you're afraid of heat. Cause I don't like hot, humid weather. Like afraid heat, afraid of heat. Do people say that in English, afraid of the heat? That's weird. Okay, cause I'm just testing with you guys. Cause that to me is super normal. People would say you like- You don't like hot weather. Yeah, yeah. So there's an example. But like, if you said to your parents or your brother, "Oh, it, it's," I, you're if I said of that heat. in English, they would totally get. It. They'd be like, "Yeah, I, I am afraid of the heat." Yeah, and you can even say like, "Afraid of the cold," too. Like I, I say because I don't mind cold weather, so I will say like I would say in in Mandarin, "我不怕冷." I'm not scared of the cold. Yeah, and I think I probably said it to my friends, like during the winter, we're doing these pandemic walks. They're like, it's really cold. I'm like, well, I'm not scared of the cold. <laughs> You're very, yeah, that's very it's Elsa. It's just an Elsa vibe to it, yeah. So thank you. First of all, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And brilliance. And I don't think, Shayla Shay and I, I could speak for both of us, I'm pretty sure. We do not think you're mediocre. Oh, thank you. I don't either. No, none of us are mediocre. No. But I'm not a math genius, that's for sure. Very few of us are. We'll let that slide. You know, it's so funny because I told you guys I was worried. I'm like, we've already had Asians. But then again, it's like, well, but everybody has a different story. Exactly. Absolutely. And Jenny, our friend, my friend Jenny said the same thing was like, but at the end of the day, like we're just humans working through the world. So like me being Korean is totally different than another person's Korean experience or Korean American experience. And, you know, that's really at the end of the day, kind of, what this podcast is about is giving every single person who has been shushed a place at the table and uh we appreciate your voice very oh much. i appreciate you guys putting this on it's like awesome i love it and hello kitty flight to Taiwan. i know i'm so in i'm so in yeah and thank you so much oh thank you bye you have too. a good night bye bye